Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Our battles aren't won in our own strength, but in God's. Revelation chapters 17 through 18 reveal to us God's divine conquest in the final battle of all time. Enjoy the message. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. But before we can get into the big day, before we can get into the celebration, before all of the festivities can happen, we got to talk about one little detail. Something called RSVP. Does anyone even know what those letters stand for? Wow, a lot more people. I had to look it up on Google. I didn't know. <laughs> Respondez s'il vous plaît. It's a fancy French way of saying, are you coming or not? Are you going to be there? Can we count on you in attendance? And the, the crazy thing about marriage celebrations is you get to save the date, you put it on the fridge, it's been there for you know, six months, and, and the, the, even the invitations are, are intimidating. They're all formal, you know, it's not just like yeah or no, right? It's, it's accept with delight or regretfully decline. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to accept with delight? I can't just hit the button and give the green check mark? No. No, it's not that. This is a formal occasion. This is something that we are planning for months out. This is a big day. And in our, in our society, honestly, it's one of the biggest um, celebrations on the calendar, one of the biggest times uh, in people's lives. And I remember a couple years back, there was a wedding that I was invited to. It was for a friend of mine, and I was so excited to be a part of their big day. I had their picture on the fridge. I was ready for everything. We, you know, we, were, we were planning to celebrate with them. Except, I used to be the youth pastor here. And if there's one thing that youth events don't tend to consider, it's that they, they plan the big youth retreats on the same day as my friend's wedding. What am I, what am I to do? I, ha I have to go to the youth retreat. The kids are like begging to go. They're like, yeah, this is dare to share. We got to be there. Got my, my friend getting married, you know, they're like, I got to be there. What is a man to do? What is a man to do? Am I going to regretfully decline? Am I going to not show up to the big wedding celebration? Well, I did what anybody would do in this situation. I tried to make it work. I went to the youth event. I was actually the MC, so I was like, okay, you know, if there's anything we know about these youth events, they're going to be timely. You know, I'm going to show up. I'll do the whole thing. This is going to be absolutely perfect. I, I might have to, you know, pull some strings but we're definitely going to make this uh, happen. And uh, I remember in high school, my mom always told me, she's like, uh, she's like, William, you got to make sure you have a suit. And I'm like, why do I need a suit? I'm not, no one dresses like that. That's kind of like, you know, you know, maybe 100 years ago, right? Like, like nobody dresses up these days. She's like, but you never know when you're going to get invited to a wedding. And I've always had that playing in the back of my mind. And on this day, this was like the worst part. Because nobody wants to be the guy rolling into the wedding in jeans. I'm sorry, it's just me. You know, everyone's like planning, everyone's formal, everyone's, you know, all, you got your fancy pants on, right? And you're ready to, to celebrate this wedding festivity. And here's me, the MC of a youth event. I get a t-shirt, a premium cotton blend mailed to me. You're going to wear this when you're MCing the youth event. And I'm like, oh my goodness. How am I going to do this? The church is across town. We're doing this event. I'm on stage telling the kids about sharing the faith. And all the time in my head is, i got to get to the wedding. i got to get to the wedding. i got to get to the wedding. So after lunch, like, all right, 
leaders, you're going to take the kids, you're going to go over here, and I got to get to this, I got to get to this celebration. So I, I dash home, I mean, this is like a scene from a movie, the, the, the clock's going like double speed, I'm like speeding through town, I throw the suit coat on, right over my t-shirt, I throw my fancy pants on, get my shoes, I book it here, I'm literally running up the steps as the grandparents are like coming down the aisle, and I'm like, I missed, I made it by like the skin of my teeth. If there was ever a skin of my teeth moment, it was that day. And I was so, like, just tense the whole time. We finally made it. And what we can say, what we can say is this. is we go to all of these lengths, we go to all of these, we go the extra mile to celebrate with a couple on their wedding day because we want to show support for them. We go through all of the, the, the formalized invitations to make sure that the people that are there to celebrate are actually going to be in attendance. And, and if there was ever a save the date, if there was ever something to keep in the back of your mind, it should be the save the date RSVP invite to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The last great wedding supper of all time because it's going to be the greatest celebration in history. And so as we dive into, as we dive into literally the culmination of everything we've studied, literally the culmination of our faith as we are brought together with Jesus once and for all, I want to leave us with our main idea today. And the main idea is this. He sent out the RSVP, so where are you going to be? All right? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. Revelation 19, verse 1, I've been instructed to go through the first 10 verses this morning, and that's what we're going to do. Um, and we're going to try and understand a little bit about this wedding feast. And as you're turning there, we've known throughout the series that this is John getting a, a futuristic view of everything that's happening. So he's trying to put into words all of the experiences, all of the things, all of the sights and sounds of heaven um, that a guy 2,000 years ago can kind of perceive, right? And so um, one thing that we have to understand uh, in this section of Scripture is there's really two focuses You've got John talking about what he hears in the section that we're, see, that we're going to read today. And then you've got the section about what John actually sees in the section that we're going to be covering in uh, later days. So there's, there's two distinct sounds that John is going to describe. And we're going to focus in on the first one in verses 1 and 2. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who covered the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. The first sound that John hears in this celebratory uh, uh, festivity that he's describing, the first sound that he hears after the fall of the great city of Babylon, the first sound after all of the world's powers and principalities have been overturned, is the word hallelujah. And after reading up on Pastor John MacArthur's notes on this section, I learned that depending on your translation, some of your Bibles will have hallelujah with an H, or Alleluia with an A. What's the difference? That's a, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. The words actually mean the same thing. The H is the hard Jewish sound. And, and my wife, being of Jewish descent, knows exactly what we're talking about. Um, and the A is the Greek translation of that same word, just Alleluia. I guess they didn't want to do the whole ha thing. Uh, but anyways. Uh, but the word actually comes from the two Hebrew words. Okay, The first word is halal or praise ye, 
no one says that anymore. But, um, and then the second word is Yah. So you got Halal and Yah. Halal, praise ye, Yah, the shortened name of God the Father or Yahweh, right? This is what sets our God apart. We serve a God who's actually got a name, a God who's knowable, a God who you can know this morning, a God who isn't just some, some cosmic energy out there that might be perceived or might not be, isn't some, you know, uh, uh, certain level of, of spirituality that you've got to climb to. No, he's personal. He's a father. You can know him. He has a name. And you can call him by that name. And that's the name that we hear the angels singing in praise here at the opening of this passage. As a matter of fact, the, the Jews in the Old Testament knew his name. They recorded his name over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. So when you hear the word hallelujah, when you sing it in a song like we just did a couple moments ago, understand that this isn't just something that the angels were singing. This is something that they were saying. Going back to the verse, a loud voice in heaven uh, saying this word, hallelujah. The word's a command. It's an action word. It implies and invites participation. So this wasn't just Leonard Cohen at the end of Shrek singing some hippie hallelujah song, right? This wasn't just, uh, this was a one loud voice in unison saying the word hallelujah, essentially commanding everybody to praise the Lord. Think of it like this. If you've ever been on the set of a, of a, of a studio or you've ever seen like those live studio audiences, the word hallelujah in this situation is the applause cue where they turn it on and everyone starts cheering, right? It's a command to, to awaken your hearts and realize who the object of our praise is. The multitudes say hallelujah and we are to respond in obedience. The fact, curiously enough, is this is actually the first time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used, okay? Uh, this is a moment of praise that has been saved for a moment just as this. So, if you're curious about some more of the word study, let's dig into the first time that this word hallelujah was used in the Old Testament. And if you're wondering, like, why are we studying this one word, it's really important. When you find a word that, that, that's been in the Old Testament and, and you have to wait literally till the end of the book to read it again, it's probably something you should zero in on. So let's look at Psalm 104.35. Okay? Psalm 104.35. May sinners vanquish from the earth, and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. So what we see in Psalm 104 is this word is used to celebrate God's judgment and deliverance of his people from out of Egypt in the Psalms. And again, this word is saved in the New Testament until Revelation 19, when we can sing and, and say God's praises once and for all as God delivers us out of the powers and principalities of the world that surrounds us. John MacArthur says, Hallelujah is a special word reserved for the joy of those who are delivered from their enemies by God's saving might. It's reserved in the Old Testament to be used primarily to celebrate God's salvation and destruction of the enemies, and it's reserved in the New Testament until it's used express to express God's saving deliverance of his people and the destruction of the ungodly across the face of the world. It's a command to praise God's character, okay? And I know while you might be thinking, if, 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 if this is your first time here and you're like, hold on a second, I'm not down, I'm not down with, with, with I don't understand this, you know? Um, how, how does this work, right? I've never been to a worship night where we're sitting there and we're praising God for, being, for delivering us from our enemies, right? So think about it like this. 
If John's going to the future, what's he going to see? It might look like a scene that, that we're all familiar with. It might be a Sunday afternoon, maybe at a place like Lambeau Field, where there's 70,000 people all screaming one person's name in unison as they declare the victor of the football game or whatever it is, right? Um, if you're not a sports fan, sorry, I can't help you. I don't know any other places in, in, in society where you get 70,000, a multitude of people screaming and chanting in unison. Uh, verse 3, a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. What kind of praise is this? This doesn't seem right. We're, we're, we're worshiping God as, after the destruction of something? Like, I don't know, I don't know about that. That seems a little dark to me. Uh, John is telling us that there is a day coming when the powers and principalities of this world are going to fall, and God is going to establish his rule forever. But what does that look like? I think the best way to understand this hallelujah praise is to go to some of our favorite movies. I'm a big movie buff, uh, and some of you may have seen Star Wars Episode Two. Star Wars Episode Two came out. I was about 12 years old, and I'll never forget this scene, which some of you may be familiar with. Count Dooku raising up an army to overtake the galaxy. Anakin and Obi-Wan travel all over the world to try and find him. They get captured. They escape the futuristic version of gladiator combat. And I might add, slip out of the battle and, con and confront Count Dooku together. But this isn't just any bad guy in the film. Oh no. This is Christopher Lee. He walks on the set. He's intimidating. He's scary. He's even got a special lightsaber we've never seen before. And what happens? The fight ensues. Anakin, laser bolt to the face. He's down. Obi-Wan standing there. Well, it was going to be two on one, but now I guess I got I to gotta handle it. You know, he did pretty, pretty well in episode one, but going up against Christopher Lee, this guy didn't stand a chance. He might be Ewan McGregor. He might be having the flowing red hair, but he didn't even stand a chance in this. Uh, he, he's fighting, and less than a minute, he's down. Anakin, I don't know what was happening to him. He clears the mental braid fog, jumps up, Tries to, tries to strike back after seeing Obi-Wan get knocked, knocked to the floor again. What happens to him? Hand cut off. Boom. It's looking really bad. It's looking really bad. We got the two guys that we were putting all of our faith, all of our hope in. We're like, these are the guys that are going to take him down. And then, when all hope seems to be lost, enter the scene. All two feet tall. Little green guy, kind of hairy. Never really seen much out of him the whole series. In walks Yoda, hobbling on a cane. Christopher Lee tries to throw a lightning bolt his way, catches it in his hand. This is no ordinary Jedi. This is Yoda. And I remember 12-year-old me sitting in Tinseltown when Yoda attacks Dooku. He flies through the air right at him, and the whole che audience cheers. They're like, oh my goodness, this is the guy. He's going to take him down. He's bouncing off the walls like a Super Bowl. He's going all over the place. He is laying the smack down on Dooku. And the only way that Dooku gets out of it, he had to cheat to win. Of course. Of course. You know, if you're not a, movie, if you're not a Star Wars fan, there's another time when I heard this, this heroic cheer this, this cry of support that came from the gut. And I wasn't alive when this movie came out, but I saw this as a child. And I remember feeling just the, the, the sense of, comp, of, of, of confidence, of, of triumph in Rocky IV. 
when Rocky Balboa finally, after everything that went through in the entire movie, when he finally puts the Russian down, puts him into the ropes, I remember as a kid jumping up and going, yeah, why? He rocked him. He was a bad dude. He killed the other guy and was, and was gloating about it. If he dies, he dies. You know, the whole thing. So when he finally gets some, you're excited. You praise. You get that, that gut feeling like, yes, this is right. This is good. I'm glad. I'm happy that the hero overcame the villain. That's who our father is. That's who the God is. And that is what the word hallelujah is stirring up in this vast multitude in heaven. It's stirring up praise for our God, Father, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of everything, who triumphs over this world, who puts down the powers and principalities that have been deceiving and blinding us for years. And he, he overcomes and reigns and says, I'm purging existence of all of this evil once and for all. Hallelujah. Praise ye, Yahweh. If you think it's wrong to praise an all-powerful conquering hero, let's look back to Revelation chapter 6. Andy covered this a few months back. Uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. After they opened the fifth seal, under the altar were the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had been given. And they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? You think those people... You know, we get the voice of the martyrs in the mail. They're the voice of the martyrs. They're the one that went through all the, the, the trials and tribulations and were killed for their faith. You think they were timid in their praise during this time? Absolutely not. They were vindicated in their praise. They were glad to get up and praise God who overcame the enemy, who overcame the evil in this world around us. And in Revelation 19.6, uh, John describes the sound this way. I hear something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. You know, I was at the Cubs at World Series Parade in 2016. My family and I were four and over seven million, okay? It was loud, but it wasn't like, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if there was anything I, I could explain that was louder, but it wasn't like indoors contained. You know how like when you go to those really small arenas and like, like it's, it's small and you start cheering and the walls are bouncing off with all the sound and you're like, ah, I have to cover my ears. It wasn't that loud with seven million people outdoors. So I can only imagine as, as John is trying, to, uh, is trying to describe this sound that's like, I don't know, the Roaring Rapids ride at Six Flags, right? It's, it's this, this rushing water. It's this overwhelming sound. You might have to, to cover up your ears because of how loud it is. <clears throat> so when you think about 7 million people cheering for a baseball game, think about how much more we are invited to join in with that heavenly chorus and to praise the ultimate victor, the true hero, the ender of all conflict once and for all by saying, hallelujah, praise God, the ultimate judge, whose verdict will render evil gone as we know it. Because you are invited to praise him, because he sent the RSVP. So where are you going to be? So how do we get from marriage to Star Wars? I was supposed to teach on this. I'm trying to go verse by verse. Look, this is, this is what you get today, all right? Uh, the ultimate invitation to the wedding feast, we finally get there in verse 7. So he says, let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. This is it. This is the moment that every believer of all time has been looking forward to. Life is hard and the struggles are real. But John is getting a glimpse of this party and the party is about to start.
The party is just about to commence. And, and Jesus hinted at this when he was on the earth. And there's something that we in our, our you know, Western, modern uh, understanding of marriage need to kind of understand uh, as, we, as we dig into this wedding celebration. Uh, we need to understand some of the Jewish wedding uh, ceremony, ritual, you know, yada, yada, all that kind of thing, because weddings were different 2,000 years ago than they were today, okay? And so uh, as, I'm, as I'm studying this, uh, Gary Hamrick actually explains in his covering of this section um, that the ancient marriage practices have so much symbolism that's baked into our understanding of the celebration that we're going to have to unpack that too. So I wish I could say here and say, hey, you know, we're going to read 10 verses of scripture. I can teach it to you, and then we'll, we'll go home, and we'll all be happy. But sometimes we're so far removed from the culture that this was written to that we actually have to work a little bit harder in order to get to the understanding that God wants us to have. So um, understanding the uh, ancient, uh, ancient Jewish wedding festivities, there are pretty much three stages, all right? So the weddings, the weddings weren't, just, you know, go on Etsy, buy a card, mail it out, and then have your wedding day, right? It, it, it was a little bit more in-depth than that. So stage one, this was called the betrothal period. This was a period where uh, the two fathers, the, the father of the bride, the father of the groom, would come together, and they'd essentially uh, have a marriage contract, a marriage covenant. It'd be a handshake deal, saying, hey, you know what? Uh, your son, my daughter, we're gonna, they're going to get married in a couple years or maybe a year or so or whatever. Um, you know, sometimes there would even be a, uh, a, a price. You know, it's like, hey, you know, 10,000 cattle, got my, got my girl over here, where this is going to be good. And, I, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, you know what? As a 20-something-year-old, there ain't no way that I'm going to let my dad arrange my marriage. Not in a chance. <clears throat> but I'm not 20 anymore. 32, almost 32, got four kids. Arranged marriages don't sound too bad. Call me crazy. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> just going to be honest. You know, because think about it. They were living in small, tight-knit communities. They kind of knew, like, hey, you know, um, I know all the families in town. And, and what? It, it's not just I know the families, but I know the previous generation or two of, of your family. And you know, old Uncle Felcher over there, he had some Felcher's follies. Might not want to stay, you know, hey, you know, got them over there. I, I, we know who's successful. We know who loves the Lord. We know who, who, who we want to entrust our children to. These are the people, and they're, and they're looking at this, and the fathers are trying to intentionally uh, set their kids up for success. Well, who wouldn't want that? Maybe some of the 20-somethings in the, in the room today. But nonetheless, I digress. I digress. Part of this process, this betrothal period, is uh, that the groom would then uh, go away. All right? so, so they got this whole thing. Um, they, they seal the deal. They shake on it. Uh, the, 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 the betrothal price or whatever you want has been paid. And so the bridegroom goes. And he'll come back for his, uh, his bride about a year later. And so here we have... Here we have a pretty interesting thing. Like, where's the bridegroom going? We're going to get to that in a second. But we see, uh, uh, actually, Jesus hints at this practice of the groom going away and coming back in a, in a parable from uh, Matthew chapter 25. Okay? And so we have this picture. Uh, it's the parable of the ten, essentially, virgins. They're, they're bridesmaids, all right? Um, so you've got the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And their job, literally, they had one job. 
The bridesmaids were to go. They kind of knew the date, right? Save the date, got it on our fridge, right? We know when he's coming back. The groom leaves for a year to prepare for himself for the marriage. A year later, he's going to come back. So the ten bridesmaids are standing on the outside of town, and they're like, your one job is to have a lantern. And when you see him, you do your little teenage giddy dance. Oh, my goodness, he's here. You run out, you grab your lantern, and you light the way for the groom to come back and find his bride. All right? I, I, this is so cool. This is so cool. They knew, they knew in advance that he was going to be there, and they were waiting and waiting and waiting for him to return. Um, when, he, when he came back from his bride, they would literally then take their lanterns, and they would walk back to the wedding celebration. And there's so much symbolism here. Literally, as I'm studying this this week, like my mind is like blowing out my nose because there's so much packed into this. You've got to see this. Uh, because remember, the wedding feast of the Lamb is the celebration of the marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. And so, think about this. Um, the, the, the betrothal contract, as, as the families would spell out his terms, um, you know, they would say, yeah, we're going to provide for her. We're going to keep her here until uh, the day that you return. Well, what's the promise for us? God's promise to us as, as the, the, the bride, as, as the church, is that he's going to provide for us, and he's going to keep us. And who's our keeper, right? You, you think about it, and it's just crazy. He says God's promise is literally, I'm going to bless you and keep you, right? We, we read that in, in Scripture. And, and his promises to the church is that he's going to keep us. And the way that he does that is when Jesus goes to prepare himself for the wedding, he sends a helper our way. He sends us the Holy Spirit who is going to bless us and keep us as we prepare for the wedding day while Jesus is preparing for the wedding day. So you ask yourself, okay, that's great. What's Jesus doing? How does he have to prepare for the wedding day? Glad you asked. John 14, in my Father's house there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you with me so you may be where I am. The invitation that John is talking about here, the invitation to this wedding festivity, goes back to this ancient Jewish practice. It goes back to this understanding that the bridegroom isn't just going away and, and, and living you know, a life of, of frivolity for a year. He's going away and he's literally building on an addition to his father's house for the next generation of the family that's going to live there. He's literally spending a year of his life to plan, you know, the, the, the family farm, the family business, the way that he's going to provide for his family so that when the, the bride comes, they're ready and, and he's got all the details squared away. Jesus is doing that for us. He's left this world and is in heaven. In my father's house are many rooms. Guess what? He's got a mansion with billions and billions and zillions of rooms for all of the Christians that he's preparing a place for. That's amazing. That's him preparing for us to be there on this wedding day that we're studying right now. So when you think about the prep lists that Andy's given us, when you think about how the bride is supposed to prepare herself, we as the church are supposed to prepare for this awesome celebration with Jesus, you've got to think about all the trials, tribulations, struggles, and strife that come our way. It's for this purpose. Why? Because he sent out the RSVP. So where are you going to be? In Matthew 22, Jesus actually uses a wedding celebration to highlight a really important point. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's long, so bear with me here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet and told them, but they refused to come. They had sent more servants and said, Tell those who had been invited, I prepared my dinner. 
My oxen, my cattle, they've all been butchered and everything's ready. Come to this banquet. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his field, another to their business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, invite all the gathered people that they could find, the bad and the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man who was not wearing his wedding clothes. He asked, How do you get here without clothes, friend? The man was speechless, and the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. I think it's appropriate to understand that Jesus is likely talking about the wedding festivity that we're studying this morning. See, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the leaders of the church back then, the number one draft picks for who you would think would be invited to this wedding ceremony, yeah, they rejected them. They didn't want anything to do with it. They got the RSVP, and, and, and I don't think they respectfully declined. I don't think they regretfully declined. I think they're like, yeah, nah, you're not it. You're not it. We're going to pass you by, Jesus. We're going to do our own thing. <clears throat> you know, uh, these are all the guys that were in the robes with the big hats and the funny robes. And uh, uh, the, the, the fact is, you don't have to be an Israelite to be saved. You don't have to be of a certain lineage. You don't have to be a, a, a certain person. You don't have to be a certain type of person. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row to be saved. You've got to respond to the RSVP and say yes. I'm going. Yes, I'll be there. He came for us collectively. And this passage reaffirms uh, that we are all the people that the king is inviting to his banquet. So if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, what is your mission here, right? You've already like, yeah, I'm stoked. You know, you're up here bigging up this, this wedding festivity. I'm already in. I can't wait for it. I want to be there yesterday, right? But we know from Matthew 28 that our job as believers is to fulfill the Great Commission, just like the passage says. As the servants of the king, we are to help fill the banquet hall by inviting people from all over the world, making disciples of all nations, and making this the greatest wedding celebration ever. And it's not enough just to have our RSVP on our fridge. It's not enough to frame it and say, I can't believe God's inviting me. It's our job to carry that RSVP with us to the ends of the earth, to wherever we're going, uh, because... You don't want to get this RSVP you know, covered up by the soccer schedule or the grocery list. We want to take this to the world because we know that life is too short and the stakes are too high to know what we know and do nothing. God sent out the RSVP, so where are you going to be? If you think you can be a Christian and your choices don't matter, you're going to be let down. Because what we're going to find in Revelation 19.8 is, uh, is what Andy has been talking about for weeks. Look at this. Uh, Revelation 19.8, he's talking about the bride. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So don't be like the guy in Jesus' parable who who shows up to the wedding feast and isn't ready. Don't be uh, without your fine linen, bright and pure. Does Jesus save you? Yes, he does. But you need to understand that your works, your actions, your choices, your life, it actually matters to God. It actually matters. And, and here's the thing, your motives, your desires to love and serve the bridegroom, the fruit that comes from your faith, it all matters to God because this is 
what is going to adorn us at the wedding celebration. It's going to be our life. It's going to be the fruit. It's going to be the people that you've invested your life into. It's going to be the RSVPs that you've sent out. It's going to be the way that you've pointed people back to the wedding feast that's going to ultimately matter. And if you, if you disagree with this, oh, you're just taking one verse. Let's look at Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Ephesians 5, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. John closes this section in verse 9 by, saying, uh, by, by writing something that Charles Spurgeon calls the last great beatitude. And he says this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is your invitation. This is, your, uh, this is the culmination of all of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection. All of his ministry has culminated in this moment. So when the powers of the world pull you down, day in and day out, this is your RSVP. This is what you're putting your hope in, your invitation. Blessed are you who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is your RSVP. Where are you going to be? Here's your prep kit for today. Where are you going to be? If you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand, where you stand with God, if you're here this morning and you're like, wasn't planning on talking about wedding robes and all this stuff, what's holding you back? Are you going to accept the invitation with delight? Or are you still on the fence? You know, when I look at my life, I see how broken I am. I was home with my four kids this week. Uh, because, I, I, you know, my, my wife works so hard taking care of the household. She got a vacation. And uh, I'm going to tell her this. Or I'm going to tell you this. Like, like, being home with the four kids, it was so hard. It was so hard. Uh, giving my wife a break from the normal routines, easy. Uh, but me, like, I am the farthest thing from perfect. I really am. Like, when you look at, when you look at my life, um, I, I got, you know, just a couple examples here. There, there was this, remember that really big storm three months ago? Well, I had a tree fall over in my backyard. It was about time I got rid of the thing because, you know, you don't want to have a fallen tree in your backyard, right? And it's just like you get all this stuff and there's all these conflicting, like, things that you have to get done. And, and so, like, as I'm home with the kids, it's like they're like, Daddy, we want to go outside and play. It's like, no, you can't. You got a tree in the backyard. Why? Because Daddy hasn't chopped it down yet. Or, or how, about, how about this? Um, when, when, when you see... Uh, you know, you got five mouths to feed at every single meal, right? And so it's like it got, um, it got, you got you, you, and you, okay, you know, you're over here, you're doing just fine, you're over here, you're fine, um, divvying out the chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, and we're, and we're spreading the table, everything's set. And somewhere in between, uh, uh, you know, Daddy, I need more water, or Daddy, I need more ketchup, I got like the worst question of all time. Is One of the kids was like, hey, Daddy, um, you know, there's a plate over there. It's got a couple chicken nuggets on it. Um, can I have those? And I'm sitting, I'm like, that's my lunch. I'm working too. And to make matters worse, like if you could have seen the scene right before that, like you would have known like just how, just how like lost I am. I'm sitting there and I'm like, I got one kid screaming at me because I made the wrong dinner. I've got another kid shrieking at me because I don't even know why. And then I got two kids having WrestleMania in their, in their room, shoving people into the, into the wall. And it all culminates in, Daddy, can I have your food? Just throw my hands up in the air. I'm, I'm, I'm done. 
So I did what any good dad would do. Gave him my chicken nuggets, made myself a PB&J, and I sat on the couch. And I just thought, like, I am absolutely miserable right now. I am absolutely miserable right now. And there's a song, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm not inviting you to be perfect. I'm not inviting you to live a life like me. This is what I'm inviting you. And I just had these lyrics going through my mind, and it helped me so much. Listen to this. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Mine are keys to Zion City where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. The invitation is not to have a perfect life. The invitation is not that you have to be all these things to all these people and have all your ducks in a row. The invitation is when trials come your way, when you're literally at wit's end, when you feel like Mrs. Incredible is like, you sit down, you sit down, you sit down, and you just want a break. Your king's walking with you. Your bridegroom is preparing a place for you. And you have a hope outside of your situation. When you're blinded by all the crazy stuff that's happening day in and day out, your hope is not in getting it right in the moment. Your hope is doing better next time. Your hope is knowing that your Savior is by your side. Your hope is in Jesus alone to fulfill you, to sustain you, to always be by your side. And so that's the first that's the first item on the prep kit. Where are you going to be? How are you going to respond to the RSVP? Look, I don't know how else to say it other than to say it to you this way. Jesus' life, death, ministry, burial, and resurrection was all for you. It was all for you because he loves you, because he wants you to be a part of this celebration. So with every head bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, if you've never placed your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus, if you've never found a hope outside of yourself, if you've never found that reason for being in God's presence, I just invite you today. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in Jesus because you don't have to be perfect. So I just invite you to raise your hand if you're making that decision today. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Awesome. Father, I pray for the people that are placing their faith, their hope, and their trust in you. Father, I pray that they would see the intentionality behind everything that you've done for us, that they would see the glory of your character, that they would see the loving, tender father heart of God who's beating for his kids, who's cheering us on in the moments where we're weak, and who promises to walk by our side forever. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.